Good morning, everybody. We're going to be uh, picking up where James left off last uh, Sunday morning. Uh, if we could have the PowerPoint on, please. So uh, James started us off on the first epistle of John, chapter 1, and we just looked at the first few verses there, and we're going to continue that this morning. Uh, and I would encourage you to open your Bibles at 1 John, chapter 1, uh, or if you don't have a Bible on your uh, phone or uh, whatever device you're looking at. So this is the passage that was read to us this morning, uh, 1 John, chapter 1. And we're going to look at just a very short phrase there to begin with, uh, uh, and then we're going to see how the Apostle John, who wrote this, uh, develops that phrase. It's really a big idea, and it's this idea that God is light. God is light. Now, it's part of the style of the Apostle John to, to just use very simple words in short phrases, but with a very deep meaning. Three simple words, God is light, and yet the meaning is extremely profound. When you hear those words, God is light, what comes into your mind? Well, possibly when you think of God as being light, you think of God's glory. You think of God's visible appearance, that he radiates light. And of course, in the Bible, there are many visions of God in which this is so. But I don't think that the Apostle John is thinking about this in the visual sense. When John says God is light, he's speaking more of light as God's excellence, as the excellence of God's virtues, the characteristics of his person. And he means things like purity, goodness, holiness, righteousness, and truth. This is what it means by the metaphor, God is light. And then he adds to this that there is no darkness in him at all. And this is also part of the style of John, that having said things in a very clear, simple, positive way, he then says the opposite and puts a negative in there. So God is light, which means he is not dark. And this John does, and it's part of his style, and he does it again and again and again in his gospel and in his writings to emphasize that this is indeed true. There is no dark side to God. All of these virtues here, God has in perfection, in fullness, unadulterated and pure. And in him there is no darkness at all. Darkness would mean the opposite. Not purity, but impurity. Not holiness, but unholiness. Not goodness, but evil. Not truth, but error. And there are none of those dark things in God. He's totally perfect in all of his virtues. But this creates a problem for us, because we are not perfect. You and me suffer from many imperfections. And one of the prophets in the Old Testament, speaking to God, says that your eyes are too pure that they can't even look upon evil. 
So we have this situation where there is a pure, holy, righteous, perfect God who's, who is so perfect, all of these excellent virtues emanate from his person like some brilliant light. But what that means is that those of us who are impure and imperfect, God cannot even look upon. Such is his purity and holiness. But having said that, this same passage in the first letter of John, in the passage that James uh, looked at last week, it does say that we have fellowship with the Father. This God who is totally pure, totally holy, totally righteous, totally perfect, has fellowship with us men, women, young people, who are far from being totally pure and perfect. We can have fellowship with God despite our many faults and imperfections. And this is only possible for one reason, and one reason only, which the Apostle John then adds. It's because, first and foremost, we have fellowship with Jesus. It's only because we have fellowship with Jesus that we can have fellowship with the Father. One thing that John explained, uh, sorry, that James explained about John last week is that in this first letter of John, there are many similarities with the beginning of John's gospel. They were written by the same apostle, James explained, and there are many ideas at the beginning of John's gospel that are repeated here at the beginning of John's first letter. And if we just glance back at the beginning of John's gospel, we find that this idea of, of light is repeated again and again and again, six times there in the first few verses. And each one of these six times, it's talking about Jesus. So we've just read in John's letter, God is light. And in John's gospel, it speaks about this light. And it's a light that came into the world. And it came into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That pure, spiritual, holy light actually took on human form. It was actually embodied in a single man whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. We could not approach God, who is pure light, but that pure light came down to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who believe in Jesus believe and accept that light. We have fellowship with Jesus, and through Jesus, we have fellowship with the Father. And that, according to John, is the essence of the gospel. So what we're thinking about this morning is this whole idea of light. God the Father is light. That light came down and appeared to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We accept that light and become followers of Jesus. But how should that affect us? How should the idea that God is light make a difference to us? And it's this that we're going to look at more closely this morning. There are two ideas that John deals with here. And we'll look at both of these in turn. What is it that the Apostle John expects his readers to understand and to do? And here, John is looking at this whole 
uh, idea of God as light uh, from an idealistic point of view. This is the ideal that we should aspire to. But then secondly, John is also a realist, and so he also considers our actual response. And it's important that we distinguish between these two perspectives. So first of all, we're going to look at what John expects his readers to understand and to do. That's the ideal. And then he's going to look more closely at the reality of our response. Okay, so God is light. What is John is expecting his readers to do in response to that? Well, he spells it out. If the God we worship and believe in is light, then the people of God, you and me who believe and worship this God, our response should be to walk in the light. And when you think about it, that's quite logical. That is a proper response. If the God we worship is light, then we as his people should walk in the light. When the Apostle John uses the word walk here, it's a figure of speech. It doesn't mean putting one foot in front of the other. It means the whole conduct, conduct of our lives, the way we live and behave. That is our walk. And if God is purity, if God uh, pit, uh, epitomizes goodness and holiness and righteousness and truth, then John is saying that is how you and I, as God's people, should live. That is the ideal that the Apostle John is teaching here. So he says that we believers should walk in the light, and then he makes this comparison, and the comparison is with God himself. Walk in the light as he, God, is in the light. That is our standard. And it is the highest standard possible, obviously. Now, as Christians, maybe sometimes, and I think there's a tendency for all of us to do this from time to time, is that we compare ourselves with one another. You know, we might think to ourselves, well, you know, uh, I'm not so bad as that person or at least I don't do what that person does, or, you know, I, I'm a, perhaps I'm a bit better than, than so-and-so. Uh, and when it comes to Judgment Day, and, and God looks upon us, and, and we are going to all appear before the judgment seat of, of God, as the New Testament tells us, then that, that kind of reasoning won't work. You can't say to God, well, at least I didn't do what so-and-so did, or at least I was a bit better than such and such, or I gave more money to charity than, than so and so. There is a tendency to make ourselves feel good or to look better when we compare ourselves with others. But John is saying the standard is God. We are to walk in the light as he is in the light, and that is the highest standard possible. And Jesus himself, he says similar words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says to all his disciples, you and me included, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, God is the standard. And the Apostle Peter, in one of his letters, he quotes God's words saying, be holy as I, the Lord your God, 
am holy. So we shouldn't measure ourselves against others. We shouldn't measure ourselves against the, the good works or the failings of others, ideally. What we should aspire to is to be like God. God is our Heavenly Father, and as his sons and daughters, we should endeavour to be like our Father. We should aim at the highest possible standard, which is God himself. Aim lower, and you will attain much lower. We need to set our aims high and our intentions high. And so it is, in keeping with this, towards the end of our reading, we actually have the words of John where he explains why he's writing to these particular Christians and through them to us also today. He says, I'm writing this to you so that, wait for it, you will not sin. How about that? The Apostle John is writing this in order that we do not commit sin. That might sound a bit steep to us. That is quite a high target to aspire to, but it is right, fitting, and proper that we should give back to God the best possible, the highest possible, which is to be like him. So all of these virtues that we see in God all of this purity, goodness, truth, holiness, righteousness, these are the things that we also, in our own characters, need to produce. This, these are the qualities to live by which make us live in the light. So this is the ideal. This is how it should work. God the Father is light, light unapproachable, pure, unadulterated light. And that light came down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who declared to the crowds, I am the light of the world, in John 8, 12. And then those who received Jesus as the light of the world, Jesus himself says, now you are the light of the world. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 14. All those who believe and follow Jesus become the light of the world. So the light is in heaven in, with God. The light comes down in the human person of Jesus Christ. And then we become the light. And we bear witness to the light and show God's light to the rest of the world. And that's it. That's the theory. <laughs> and if I was to finish the sermon at this point, it might be a little bit worrying because there is another side to it, as I'm sure that we're all aware of. But this is the ideal that we should aspire to, to be lights in the world as God himself is light. But the Apostle John is very much uh, aware that there is another side to our human nature. And so, as well as our expected response, he does deal with our actual response. He is also a realist as well as an idealist, and he does very much take into account the fact that this ideal that we will aspire to 
is one that we will not always meet. And so in this same chapter, the Apostle John talks about sin. And he says in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So he does openly admit, not just openly admit, but it's an important part of the revealed truth of what John, inspired by the Spirit, has to say is that those people of God who he's just said should walk in the light, we should also freely and openly acknowledge that there is sin in our lives. And I'm sure at this part, point you all feel a sigh of relief that the Apostle John actually acknowledges that among the people of God, among Christians, we do sin. And in fact, what John is saying here is that if we actually claim to be without sin, this makes us uh, deceivers. This means we are not speaking the truth. This means we're making God out to be a liar. And so anybody who actually makes this claim, oh, that I don't sin, is not actually walking in the light, but is actually in darkness because they're making God out to be a liar. They themselves are telling lies. They are deceiving themselves. And all of those things are things that belong to darkness. To claim to be without sin is not to walk in the light. It's a kind of paradox. And so, conversely, if we confess our sin, if we admit that we are sinners and acknowledge, yes, I am a sinner, then that actually means you are in the light because what you are saying is true and it accepts God's word as true. And so, Reading, reading what John says here, we, we see that the, the ideas of lying at, uh, and not telling the truth, these are things that belong to darkness. And when a Christian says, yes, I am a sinner, that actually belongs to the light because it is truthful. It's not deceiving ourselves and it's not making God out to be a liar. So, as we endeavor to walk in the light, the Apostle John makes it clear that in this walk, there will be sin. In this Christian life that we endeavor to live, there will be sin. And that actually is the reality of the matter. The ideal, on one hand, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. That's what we should all aim at, and aspire to, that's the ideal, but in real life, the reality is we cannot deny the fact that we do sin. So it's like this. If we take the light, for example, in the form of the sun, so there's darkness uh, and there is light. In the darkness uh, of night, the sun has set, the sun is no longer there, it's moved on, uh, and in the daylight, the sun rises and the sun shines. And, and we can liken that to, to enjoying fellowship with God, being in the sunshine. 
And I'm sure we've all had the experience when we're sitting outside on a lovely sunny day, the sun is shining, we're feeling and enjoying its war warmth, everything is bright with the sunlight, and we com can compare that with fellowship with God. We're enjoying the presence of God, we're enjoying the, the sunlight, but then suddenly, and I'm sure you've all had this experience, the light suddenly becomes dimmer, doesn't it? Uh, and, and the brilliant colours around us of the flowers and things suddenly also becomes di dimmer, uh, and the temperature drops by three or four degrees, and we reach out for a jumper or a cardigan or something. And that is because something has come between ourselves and the sun. A cloud comes across the sun, and it changes the way everything looks, the way everything feels. And spiritually speaking, this is what it's like when we sin. Sin does affect our relationship with God. Sin does affect the fellowship that we have with God. Something disrupts, something obscures that fellowship. And when we're in this state of sin, we don't feel so close to God. We don't relate so closely to God. He seems more distance, distant from us, and we're not enjoying his presence. How, spiritually speaking, can we deal with this? Well, the Apostle John actually spells it out. We need to confess our sin. These are the words that he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, God, he, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the first step towards forgiveness, the first step towards removing this barrier that has come between ourselves and God is to confess. And if we do this, it says here, he will purify us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to note that little word, all. We'll come back to that in a few seconds. We need to confess our sins before God. But how can we be sure that that actually works? Because, he goes on, apart from confession, we have someone in heaven, in the presence of God the Father, who is acting on our behalf. He says, that, he says here, this is following on from those words, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. He follows this, but if anybody does sin, and realistically speaking, this is something we will do on a regular basis, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. So when we sin, here on earth we need to confess our sin, and up there in heaven we have Jesus at the right hand of God, and it says that Jesus is our advocate. Uh, Tim was saying, I'm going to pronounce a, a Greek word for you. <laughs> it's here, it's parakletos, uh, and uh, you may have heard this word kind of anglicized as paraclete. And this is the word in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that the Apostle John is using. In heaven, Jesus Christ 
is our paraclete, our paracletos with God the Father. And this word has two meanings. Its more general meaning is comforter. So if we take the word back to its component parts, uh, it means someone who comes alongside you. That's what a paraclete is. Uh, in fact, it's someone who is called alongside you. Para means next to, uh, and kletos means called. Someone who comes alongside you, and for that reason, you are comforted. You have a fellow there who is with you in your circumstances. That's a paraclete, a comforter. But more technically, this word would be used uh, in a court case, in a, in a legal situation. Uh, and that's where we get the idea of advocate. It's a legal term. Um, we would understand an advocate to be a kind of defense lawyer. So in a legal situation where we're being accused of something, an advocate, our defense lawyer, is someone who comes alongside us to defend us. And the Apostle John is saying, yes, this is what the Lord Jesus is like. This is what he is doing for us in heaven. And yet, there is a great difference between what a human advocate does for the accused and for what Jesus does for us. And it's important that we grasp this different difference. Jesus is our advocate, yes, but in a very, very different way than an advocate in any human court. Uh, if you take a kind of legal situation like you see here, uh, it's the advocate's job to defend the accused uh, against the charges against them. Uh, and when the judge says, okay, how does your client plead, then if it's a defense lawyer, uh, he or she will say, uh, not guilty, your honor. But Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> when we appear in this kind of situation, and we are being accused, John has already said that we need to confess it. Uh, and so when Jesus answers to the Father on our behalf, how does so-and-so, you and me, plead? In every instance, it would have to be guilty. Uh, and this is one of the important differences. We're not trying to get off the charges against us because each one of those charges is actually true. This person has sinned. This person has said what they shouldn't, thought what they shouldn't, done what they shouldn't. This person is proud. This person is envious. Yes, guilty. Guilty, Your Honor. We're, I'm guilty of all these things. And confessing that guilt is actually the first step towards being released. And the second important difference between Jesus as our advocate and any human lawyer is the fact that if there is any penalty to be paid, if there is any punishment that the judge is going to issue, it's already been dealt with. Because we're told that Jesus took all our sins, all our wrongdoings upon himself. And if there is any punishment or penalty, it is he himself who has taken that upon himself in the cross and done away with all that pain and suffering, which is what we ourselves deserve. So Jesus, yes, he's an advocate, 
but so, so much different and superior to any human advocate on earth. So if we confess our sins, John says, and if we plead forgiveness in the name of Jesus, our heavenly advocate, then that cloud which has obscured us from the light will be done away, and we can once again enjoy the fellowship with God and uh, have that sense of relationship and closeness to him. So that actually is the actuality of how life is, and I'm sure that many of us here this morning, perhaps the majority of this, will, will know what John is talking about, and this is our daily experience. We fall into sin, we deal with the sin through confession and through pleading forgiveness in the name of Jesus, our heavenly advocate, and then we move on. But for some here this morning, I'm sure this is not our experience of sin in our lives. Sin is very pervasive in our, in our human makeup, uh, not just in our thoughts, but in our wills, in our emotions. Uh, sin can gain a very strong grip over people, even Christians. And so I just want us to think also about a situation where it's not just an individual cloud coming in front of the sun, but the sun is not visible at all. The sky is not visible at all. There's just clouds from one side of the sky to the other. And this is the spiritual state that some Christians sadly fall into when they commit not just occasional sins, but are in the grip of what we could refer to as habitual sin or addictions. Christians can become addicted. Just yesterday, I heard about a Christian uh, who was addicted to alcohol. Thankfully, he was uh, delivered from that, but he did become addicted. Alcohol and drugs, very common addictions. But this day and age, probably most habitual sins, I would imagine, that Christians fall into. And in any congregation of this size, there will be some people here who are in the grip of this kind of sin, it comes through the internet. And you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, there's gambling, people gamble on the internet and become addicted to that, but probably the number one habitual sin uh, of Christians in this day and age is to do with pornography, which is so read readily viewable on the internet. Uh, whatever the habitual sin, drugs, alcohol, gambling, pornography, or whatever, it does make a barrier between us, ourselves and God, much more permanent and longer-lasting than that occasional solitary sin. And it just seems that, that God is not there anymore. We don't have fellowship with God. We don't experience the joy of God because we are caught up in this ongoing sin and God seems very remote. It affects our relationship with him, which means we're not walking in the light, which means that it affects our witness, and when other people perhaps find out about this sin, uh, it becomes a negative witness instead of a positive one. I came across a quote, this was just yesterday. I'm uh, not into poetry, but I did come across a very relevant uh, 
quote from one of the classic poets of old, I think it was Longfellow, uh, he said these words. He said, behind the clouds, the sun is still shining. And I think that's very relevant because it, what, that is what makes the darkness of night, which is unbelief, different from the darkness of a cloudy and gloomy day. It may affect the level of light in both cases, but essentially they are different. At nighttime, the sun is gone. The sun has set. It's no longer there. But on a gloomy gray day, even behind the clouds, the sun is still shining. God is still there, and there is still hope even for the, the son or daughter of God who is caught up in such addictions or habitual sin. And this is where we go back to John's little word, all. Because what John said there is that God will purify us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say from small. He says all. So whether it's a small sin or great, whether it's an occasional sin or habitual, whether it's just an individual cloud that's passed across the face of the sun, or whether the whole sky is grey and gloomy with clouds, at the end of the day, it is all sin, whether it's small or great. It is all sin. One may be longer-lasting in its effects, but at the end of the day, sin is sin. And John says that God will purify us from all unrighteousness. And that is his wonderful promise in this passage. And so whether it's an occasional solitary sin or whether it's an habitual addictive sin, John is saying the same thing. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus in heaven is not the advocate for those whose sins seem trifling and not that significant. He's the advocate also for those who commit the great sins. And throughout the Bible, we have people who have committed great sins, adultery, murder, and other sins which are equally forgiven. So in this passage, John is putting forward the same remedy for sin, whether it's small or great, the promise is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness, and we have this wonderful advocate, Jesus Christ, in the presence of the Father. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is all-sufficient. Jesus has paid the penalty for all sinners, whether small or great. I'd like us to close. Uh, we're going to close in a prayer, which we'll all pray together. It will be on the screen. But let's just spend a few seconds reflecting on these words of John. What is God saying to you this morning through these words about God 
as light. Let's just be still and quiet for a moment, and then we'll pray together. So let's all join in together within the prayer that's uh, up on the screen. Lord, our Saviour, with you there is no darkness. Your character has no shadows, and you are pure and good. Fill us with your light. Help us to follow the light and live the truth. In you we have been born again as sons and daughters of light. May we be your witnesses before all the world to bring light where there is darkness and hope where there is despair. Grant this, we pray, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.